Three, two, one. Episode 21 of Into the Absurd with Dr. Jamie Derrick. She is an associate clinical professor in the Department of Psychology and Communication Studies. She's also a licensed psychologist and she teaches courses in developmental psychology, emotional well being, and mindfulness. Thank you for coming on. It's really good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. So you were, so you sent me an email and uh-huh. you were talking about radical kindness and I want to know what that is. Yeah, I chose those words really intentionally because I've had a commitment to kindness for about 15 years. That's probably an exaggeration, probably 12 years. And I created a practice for myself of that I call be kind always. So yeah, I don't know if you noticed at the bottom of my email, it also says that be kind always. Yeah, I and, saw that. And I give a lot of, I've given a lot of thought to like, you know, what's the role of kindness in my life and what does it bring to the world when I am kind? And what do I want from other people by way of kindness? And what I've discovered over the course of time is that I want to create myself and I want to receive human, see what's the right word, kind of generosity of understanding and a willingness to be respectful in communication all the time. So without exception, that's what makes it radical. It's always, and I have, I try to live up to that myself and, you know, with greater or lesser success, depending on the circumstances, but it's my aim. And I find that it's a really, really important value to live by. And it reminds me that I can be, I can interact with other people in a really truthful way. I don't have to sell myself short in terms of my honesty or my authenticity or my boundaries. And I can say whatever it is that I have on my mind through a lens of being respectful of the other person's humanity. And when I receive that, I just am a better person. When I give it, I'm a better person. When I receive it, I'm a better person. And I actually think it's one of the things we need in the world to change up how hostile and fragmented we are as well as a nation and as people you know across all sorts of lines of definition yeah i think kindness is perhaps one of the most important characteristics that a human can have Mm -hmm. it it not only makes you feel like a good person uh, you you are a good person and that makes you feel good. And I know I took this psychology of emotion course and I think uh, Dr. Kirsten is his name. Mm-hmm. And he talked a lot about how positive emotions can have this rippling effect where you feel positive and then you start doing this thing where you kind of attract positivity into your life and you continually kind of work your way up this ladder of positivity. I don't know if you have any commentary on that. Well, I'm a, I'm a believer in that kind of stuff. I have a slightly different take on it from the kindness perspective, just because I've thought a lot more about that. Kindness is contagious. And so there, there's people who have done these studies where they look at Like if I do one gesture of goodwill in my life towards another person, that single gesture is likely to fan out to four more people 
through the person that I was kind to. So that means that kindness, they'll be kind. So like if I'm kind to somebody, they're likely to be kind to another person who's likely to be kind to another person in their life. It grows, they can follow, trace it to four people. So it means it grows exponent, exponentially. And I think of that as like, what else do we get a four times payback on? You know, like very few things and it's positive. So it, it generates positive emotion like you were talking about and positive emotions sort of expand within us also like biologically. Kindness releases a bunch of chemicals in the brain when we're kind to someone else or even when we receive kindness that are uplifting and positive. So that's what's being spread. And most harm that we carry, you know, most of us carry a certain amount of harm inside, which has been oftentimes done to, the experience arises out of other people's actions towards us that are unkind. So if we've committed to kindness, we would undo harm and spread goodness at the same time. Like it's just, it feels like a no brainer to me, not to say that it's easy. Like I definitely know that there's a lot of challenges to doing it, but very worthy. Yeah, I think there's a lot of emotional barriers that people put up that make it difficult mm -hmm. to be kind. And the thing is being kind also involves being honest and it's mm -hmm. hard to be honest sometimes, you know, because you want to protect yourself and you want to, and you feel like you're protecting them, but the yeah. reality, you know, there's a certain backfire in mm -hmm. dishonesty. But I think with your because you practice mindfulness and you teach it. And I think that can really help, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, the benefits of the, the mindfulness practices is, you know, dropping into awareness of it's deeper connection to your own heart, really. I think at the root of the practices, you know, like it's not just about stress reduction and focus. It's about getting to know yourself in a much more deep and profound way. And, and, and so, yeah, you, you, it's difficult to live out of alignment when you have a, a lot of awareness to how you're feeling inside or what's moving in your heart or what your longings are. Even seeing, like when I see myself honestly, even in the moments where I'm not being the best person I'd like to be, it's very difficult for me to like, just set that aside and go, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Like I know it matters, it does matter and it matters to me. And so the practice is, is is to help with like that kind of self-knowing and also to um, cultivate practices that build resiliency in the face of challenging emotions. So challenging emotions become less of a concern, less of a barrier to action or mostly to action and just to being present to experience. It makes it easier, I think. If, like, why do I want to protect myself or someone else by not saying what's true? It's usually because I don't want to encounter the negative emotions of it. And if I have a way of doing that, that keeps me resilient and keeps me kind of grounded, then it's not as hard to do those more challenging actions, to speak up, to set boundaries, to let someone know if they've said or done something that's hurtful, or if you need more from somebody, or you know, I get you're just witnessing someone not being healthy or not doing things that are benefiting others that are, you know, are maybe potentially being caused harm by 
their actions? Yeah, I've been trying to, so I set a reminder every day to meditate three times a day and yeah, but I ignore it every day. (laughs) (laughs) So how do I go about not ignoring that reminder? What do you think your advice would be? uh, That's such a great question. Like this is the thing, like most of us know meditation would do us good but like actually doing it consistently is challenging and um I have a cup my answer to this question has changed over time like when I was first trained to teach meditation you know the teacher that I studied with his his perspective this is John Kabat-Zinn um is put your butt on the cushion and do it like just to power through it and eventually you establish a habit and the habit will maintain itself Um, I actually have come to believe that that is probably not the right answer for all people. That might be the right answer for some people. It may really support the development of practice, but I've become much more heart focused in my teaching and in the way that I do my own practice. And I believe it's really important to kind of follow, follow your own spirit and instinct. Like, I believe it's really important to have an internal based practice of some kind, like we need to have some way of connecting to who we are truly inside heart and mind and for many of us soul and spirit like it's really important to cultivate some skills to navigate the truth of life's experience which is full of ups and downs it's not just ups it's ups and downs and we need some way to you know meet that reality but mindfulness and meditation doesn't have to be the only way of doing it, that there's so many practices that support that. And I, like if for you, just using you as an example, if you're setting an intention and you're resisting the intention, like the question I would ask is, is there another thing that you might actually really want to do or enjoy doing because it fulfills you? or it it grounds you, or it connects you to something important and meaningful in your life, and urge you that way. So just to like continue with my own story, I learned to meditate when I was an undergraduate in college, so it was a long time ago, and, and and I practiced pretty consistently for a long time, and then I, and then I stopped for a chunk of time, and during that stopping time I was doing other things like I did cultivated a practice of remembering and writing down my dreams and then spending time with my dreams to understand what the images might have to say about my experience of living or what my healing path might need and that period of time where I worked with my dreams was profoundly important to my own healing and growth and it was meditative in a certain kind of way it wasn't a classic meditation but it was definitely internal and meditative and thoughtful and compassionate, like all those pieces. And it was what I needed. And, and then I returned to meditation after that. None of this was by choice. This is just the way it unfolded. Um, and my meditation practice is actually more solid now after that. Uh, and I think I needed what the dream work offered me, which was a, it really offered me the ability to be much more stable when I'm confronting really painful or difficult moments. So like when you work with a nightmare, learn how to do that. 
if you can stay sort of grounded and present to a nightmare, then the arising of anxiety or sadness or anger in day-to-day -day life just feels within reach, it's much more possible. So uh, yeah, that would be my answer. So you were practicing lucid dreaming in a sense. I don't, I'm not really lucid. Like I, so this is, lucid dreaming is a, is a beautiful thing. And for people who don't know what that is, it's being able to sort of control your actions while you're dreaming, like knowing you're dreaming and then practice being able to control what's happening in the dream. I never really was drawn to lucid dreaming. I like my dreams to unfold in their own natural way and then learned from them that way. But I did become somewhat lucid <laughs> in my dreams, not to control them, but I would just know I was dreaming and I would know what was happening. And it would allow me to sort of meet what was happening with just a little bit of awareness. Most of this part that I was talking about though, this ability to encounter difficulty would happen when I was awake. Like after I had the dream, I would write it down and then kind of, uh, try to understand the imagery and the feelings. And, and I learned like over time, you know, to befriend uh, some of the harsher characters in my dreams and to understand that they served a purpose in my life, which is a long story, but like, you know, really, I mean, that's, that's psychologically the, the darkness that arises in us is not necessarily the enemy or something to get rid of. It can actually be something that helps us to understand ourselves in a deeper way. So I learned a little bit about how to approach things from that kind of a mindset. And over time, I just found that when I was having a nightmare, I wasn't afraid of it while I was having it the same way. It was, it was kind of like I, I, I knew at some kind of mild level, oh, I'm having a nightmare. And then it would just happen. So I, I became not as afraid of the un, that kind of unfolding in my dream life and that carried over into my my waking life too not to say that i don't get afraid i do but it doesn't have the same kind of doesn't take me over i usually have a sort of sense of consciousness while i'm in a fearful situation yeah it's kind of recognizing that you're in a nightmare and then mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, I'm in a nightmare. Mm -hmm. It'll pass. It's all good. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's yeah. okay to be a little scared, but you know, that's just, that's yeah. just the natural thing that happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I even had some curiosity over time. Like it took a little while to get here, but I would have curiosity about the characters who were showing up. Like hmm. why, what do you want me to know? Essentially? What are you, why are you like showing up in such a terrifying version like what is what do I need to notice or understand or you know what in me am I needing to know something more about and then that would become kind of an interesting contemplation during waking life not that I could always answer those questions sometimes I had no idea but um, sometimes I did and it was it was like a way of like waking up to my own patterning that wasn't serving me that was actually causing me harm so sometimes in dreams, I get a random person that I haven't seen in years just mm -hmm. kind of floats in. Do you have any commentary on that? <laughs> yeah, that happens to me too. 
Uh, the first thing that always happens for me when someone enters my dreams is I kind of want to reach out to them in real life and check in on them if I still have a relationship to them that would allow that. And that's just, I don't know, that's just an uprising of my, of my heart. And at the same time, like the way that I work with dreams are all the characters in the dreams, I think of them as possibly parts of myself. So if I, I actually had a dream last night about a person from my past that I haven't seen or been in contact with for a long time. Last night I had that a dream, not somebody that I like very much. And so I've, I've like, pondered it today a little bit and I've been at and so the questions that have arisen for me around that like I don't want to reach out to this person so that part of it wasn't present for me but but like what about this human their characteristics or their being or their influence in my life matters to me right now like why are they showing up now and why are they doing what they're doing in my dream now like what is it that I need to or might want to connect to or understand through that lens. So in this particular dream, it was a person who is a really unpleasant human and they showed up in my dream as a very kind and supportive person, which surprised me in my dream. I was like shocked. I was sort of like, who are you? <laughs> ah, you're not who I expected. And so part of my questioning has been, you know, is there some kind of part of myself that has a, an unkindness to it that needs to grow in the same way you know is there something i've missed that needs to grow or is there something that's already grown that needs to be recognized so that's the way i'm thinking about it and this whole thing that you're doing is this uh this thing that you were telling me about jungian dream work is this jungian dream yeah. work mm -hmm. or yeah. jungian dream work yeah. how do you yeah. pronounce it it's a uh, Jungian. It's like uh, so. It's Carl Jung's ideas, which are complicated and far-reaching. And the part of it, I studied his work for a long time, and he he really offers a um, spiritual psychology. I think that's the way people would describe it, and that our inner world really speaks to us. This is according to Jung, speaks to us in images and stories. So our dreams are essentially images and stories that are speaking to us from some deep spiritual reservoir. It's a way for like something that we can't connect to in conscious life, like in this kind of life where we're talking to each other, doesn't show up the same way. For it to surface in us to start to get uh, a knowing from it, his view was that that uh, reservoir is wise and moves us towards healing and wholeness and growth. So those messages are really valuable if you integrate them into your life. And I was deeply influenced by that work. So that is how I approach my dreams. I think of them as messages from something in me or something in the universe that's wise and helpful and speaks in image and story and sometimes metaphor and feeling. And if I can at least be open and curious to it, I may learn something or gather something that will be helpful. Yeah, I like Carl uh, Jung. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I haven't really explored him that much in depth, but I have heard s some of his things on, you know, um, the subconscious. Yes. And for me, dreams are a very 
mystical sort of experience you know yeah. they're not it because you know that it's you know it's your subconscious but it's also sometimes helpful for me to think of it something beyond just my subconscious mind you know yeah 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 you're that's totally in agreement with the perspective of Jung I think like he he, he makes claims that you know there's a collective wisdom and it extends beyond the individual it's collective so uh he, he probably he might even go further than that you know and, and speculate about what it is but i really like that idea also and that we're connect we're we as individuals are connected to it you know whatever it might be that it may be hard to pin down exactly what it is but that we can connect to it and benefit from it remarkable it's been remarkably helpful for me in my lifetime like it's there are times when there's no folks around who have the right answers to help right so to know that there's an inner reservoir of something that can be tapped into at least part of the time and can be helpful and healing has been a great solace to me it does sometimes feel for me that my dream is kind of almost giving me a slap in the face sometimes of, Hey man, like, what are you doing in your life right now? You need to yeah. fix this. You need to do this. Yeah. Think a little bit more about this. Yeah. And it's a very good experience to take these dreams to heart and not yeah. just say, okay, it was just a dream, whatever. And then yeah. go about your day. Cause I think focusing on your dreams uh -huh. helps you be a little bit more aware of what's going on throughout the day. Yep. I'm in hundred percent agreement with you. And like when people say, Oh, I ate spicy food last night and had this dream. Like part of me just wants to go take a deeper look. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's yeah. more than that <laughs> for sure. And I have always felt like dreams can say the things to me that no human could say, like a human might say the same thing and I'd get defensive or feel criticized in some way where I'd have a hard time absorbing the words but when it arises in dream there's something about it that's easier to go oh my gosh you're totally right yes I do that or I don't do that or whatever and so <laughs> and they're perfectly timed like the messages or the challenges or whatever whatever's arising to me feel like they they come at just the right time so that I'm ready for it also like my my life is ready and my system is ready for a call to look at something that maybe I've been overlooking yeah I mean it's a it's a whole four-dimensional VR experience so <laughs> so yeah exactly yeah, it's, um, it, it's definitely really good at communicating to you mm -hmm. an idea. And a lot of times, I mean, you're not even aware that you're in it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. It's fabulous. And I, 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 I hinted at this before, but like, I think it's pretty connected to the, you know, like to the meditative world that, you know, when mm -hmm. you, when you read about people's kind of experiences while they're meditating or people who've meditated for long periods of time they seem to tap into this reservoir that way you know i don't i don't really think it's all that separate and uh yeah like i think our our bodies and our our deep inner experiences have a we have access to it 
in different ways. So what do you think is the best way for someone to keep track of what's going on in their dreams and kind of uh, do you keep a dream journal or do you just kind of think about it? I keep a dream journal. So I, I love to sleep, you know, so I don't give up my sleep for anything. I don't wake up in the middle of the night to write my dreams down. So I figure if I don't remember it, it doesn't need to be remembered. That's my philosophy. I value my dreams. So I think of dreams as coming from like, a valuable place, right? Like it's a communication that I, that matters to me. I want it. Actually, I want it a lot. So I think that sort of interest and almost like longing is too strong of a word, but it's close to that. This like, I want a connection to that part of me. Um, I pay close attention. And when a dream arrives, I do write, I write every one of them down. I've written every dream down for probably 20 years. I have a, a whole bookshelf of journals that are filled with my dreams. And most of the time, I will spend a little bit of time with every dream that comes along. Like if I'm super busy, I might not, I might miss it or something. But, but I, I spend a little bit of time. So my morning ritual is to awaken, to notice the beautiful out of doors, have a cup of tea, meditate, um, write my dreams down if I've had any, and then to spend a little time with the images in my dream, asking just in questions of curiosity. Like, I wonder what, you know, this character wants me to know, or I wonder why this plot is, is surfacing in my life right now. And I try to just absorb whatever wisdom might be present. So that's a practice for me. That's actually a part of my daily practice. And I encourage just, oh, if, you're, if you want to know your dreams and you value your dreams, then make a little space for them. And I have plenty of people, like I do a dream group with some friends and not everybody writes their dreams down. Some people just remember them. And I think that's fine too. Like you have to find your own little way of doing it. I like writing them down because I can go back to them. Sometimes I forget images or stuff and I want to go back and reread it, but, but it's not necessary. I think the valuing of it is necessary and to not dismiss what arises as inconsequential or meaningless, but to know that there's likely something of value in it to be discovered. I think that's really awesome that you've been doing it. They have, you have a whole bookshelf full of dream journals. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I don't know. I don't go back. Any, I used to go back and reread everything periodically. And it's too big now. It's like yeah. <laughs> too much to read. And they're also like, I don't know, some of the older dreams don't feel very relatable anymore. Mm. Um, so eventually I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do with all of that. But um I'm not ready to part with it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think if a lot of people had that same ritual, it'd probably help them out a little bit. I mean, at least you seem like a very calm, kind person. Mm. So. Mm. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, my dreams have been, I used to say they were my, you know, it was my spiritual practice. Like I've learned, I've probably learned more from my dream life than from any other practice I've undertaken 
and I've done a lot, you know, being a clinical psychologist, I spent a lot of time in therapy while I was training. You have to be in therapy as part of your training. And I've done therapy afterwards and, you know, all, all sorts of like psychological practices and they're all valuable and they've been helpful in their own ways. But for the deepest, most profound learning, it's been my dream life that has provided that for me. And meditation for me is, is about actually having a way of tapping into the same place that my dreams come from when I'm not asleep. And that's, that's what I do with my meditation practice. I'm just kind of opening to my depths. So, and a lot of the teaching, the meditation teaching that I do, like I teach kind of the foundational practices of, like we all have to start with like settling down and, and knowing how to like not pay too much attention to the momentary rumblings of our mind like that's the foundational stuff that has to happen and then once that's kind of established and there's a level of like solidness in practice it's really possible to drop into um, a connection to somewhat more into the depths of our inner world and I think it's connected to dream and I think it's connected that's I think that's where we do our healing so you were a clinical psychologist then? It, are I you still, still doing that? I still am, yeah. I still I have a private practice. I have like, so I'm not inviting people into my private practice because it's tiny. <laughs> and I work full time as faculty. So like that takes up most of my time. But I do see a handful of clients and and I do this kind of work with them. Like a lot of the people who are in my practice are people who've experienced limitations or suffering in their life because of historical events you know oftentimes it's developmental stuff like family stuff or sometimes it's a tragedy or you know but oftentimes there's like kind of a trauma involved or a, a deep limitation emotionally that feels just heavy and like it gets in the way so those are the types of people who tend to come to the kind of counseling that I do. And I do mindfulness-based inner work, um, uh, tapping into kind of this deep reservoir that I was talking about through, it's like through, through the body, through somatic um, sensation and, and sometimes image and sometimes memory. So it, it's all of this stuff is kind of woven together for me at this point in my career path. Was that too abstract? Like, it's really hard to like explain it in just a few words. No, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a very, that's a unique way to do clinical mm -hmm. practices, I think. Cause a yeah. lot of people, at least when I go to therapy, it's kind of, you know, they ask about my childhood and, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 A lot of clinical work and a lot of the clinical work that I received when I was you know, getting therapy is about modifying be behavior, which there isn't anything wrong with that. Modifying thinking. I just think there, it's hard to do that. Like, it's just really, it's not as hard to modify behavior if you're really kind of disciplined and ready to do it. But to modify what your mind is thinking is really hard work. And people can end up feeling like they're failing or they're not good enough or like bad because they have a hard time doing it. And I have found that working in this other way, lots of times thinking will change because of, on its own, 
because of this deeper level of work. Like the, you just start to experience life and yourself and the world with a slightly different lens. And then the thoughts, some of the thoughts don't make sense anymore. So it's easy to let go of them. So with this clinical practice, it sounds like you are, or at least you think that awareness is kind of the first step to healing, kind of being aware of that, these inner processes or processes that are happening. Yeah. Um, awareness in the company of great self-compassion and acceptance. So all the work that I do is aimed at, it's not aimed at changing things. Like we don't go in with the intention of changing exactly more going into no. So that's the awareness, like curiosity. It's almost like the, when I was telling you about dream characters, like it's almost the same, like here's this experience that's arising in your life. Let's just spend a little time and get to understand and know it better from a kind of from a somatic from in your body like where do you feel it and experience it and and what does it feel like when you connect to this experience and are there any you know, like do any images come to mind as you're experiencing it or, or any memories come to mind as you're experiencing it and just let those unfold like without any particular demand that they be different and then great self-compassion around like oh gosh it can be so hard to be a human and have an experience like that like let's just be tender with that part of you that's trying so hard like that kind of stuff it's just being with and being aware of and experiencing and compassion and something kind of amazing happens in that place, which is kind of a spontaneous understanding or sometimes a spontaneous shifting. Not always immediately, sometimes it can take a while, you know, returning over and over again to the same kind of patterning or feelings. But, but then transformation or expansion or understanding that allows a little more space happens. And that just ripples through the system. It ripples through emotion and it ripples through cognition, like how, how we think about things. And I find that to be a gentler and kind of deeper way of finding relief. So I guess that is almost, that's almost destroying the problem at its root, really. Yeah. And then everything kind of trickles down from there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice way of looking at it. Yeah. And sometimes the destroying the problem at its root is, is like letting it be there. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, definitely. That's, and that's like the, that's like the mindfulness thing. Like the core foundation of mindfulness is trying not to, have this change, improve, better, modify attitude be the only attitude, you know, that there's another attitude that's possible, which is to allow ourselves to be who we are and what we are and compassionately create space for that. And that in and of itself can be transformative. It's the weirdest thing, like, you know, I don't know. I, and I find it a little fascinating. 
So do you have any commentary on how this sort of clinical practice could help people say beat addictions? Interesting question. Well, this is a topic that's like got layers to it. Um, I feel like addiction arises as a response to something else, oftentimes something that hurts. And addiction is a is an attempt to try to tend to or hold or somehow live even though something is hurting. So somebody who's actively addicted is probably not going to be available to do this kind of work. Like the addiction would have to be in remission, probably. I mean, I've done a little bit of this work before with somebody who is actively addicted, but it was not the easiest thing to do. I don't think it's the most effective. Um, and then somebody who's like in remission, but has sort of a tendency towards addiction or is tempted to go back or whatever, I would work with this at the level of what's hurting and do all the stuff I've been talking about, like to try to access what it is that hurts inside mm -hmm. and, um, and then try to be with that, you know, try to understand it, hear it, you know, see what gave rise to it, what is, what might be needed in response, like what's the longing for? Most of our hurts have a longing in them too. Um, and is there a way to, in a healthy way, in a non-harming way, take care of the hurt and meet the longing so that he true healing can occur? Yeah, I think for me, I think addiction is really a way of avoiding a problem mm -hmm. that's that's within. Mm -hmm. It's a say, you know, if the problem is a dragon, then addiction is really kind of chaining the dragon up until it breaks free, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I think mindfulness is kind of a way of, well, just going down and not slaying the dragon, but almost taming it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. I love the metaphor of a dragon. It's, it's compelling and it, and it fits into like the Jungian ideas too, like that, um, like in a nightmare, if I was being chased by a dragon and I felt threatened, the curiosity that I would have is what is this dragon? Hmm. And why is it chasing me? And the, and the recommendation it for from people who do like who are experts in dream um, is to eventually get to the point where you can turn and have dialogue with the dragon and say what do you want from me what have i ignored what have i harmed what have i not seen or not done that i could do and in that way you're sort of like that's the taming of the dragon, you know? And then once the dragon gets what it needs, it may not chase you anymore. So you're also delve into developmental psychology. Do you think it would, so if you were to be say the 
head of the Department of Education, would you have mindfulness as a class in elementary and middle school and things like that? Yeah, I think I would. I'd have something like that available for kids, you know, like if children can learn healthy ways to communicate what they what they need or where they're hurting and they can have ways to settle their bodies and their minds and their emotions from an early age, then they're just in a better, they're better prepared to meet all the challenges in life educationally and with their friends and family and to grow up with a really solid foundation for meeting the ups and downs of life. So the earlier we can learn it, the better, I think. The Dalai Lama, who is like the spiritual leader in one of the one form of Buddhism, says that if we could teach meditation to every seven year old in the world within a generation, we would see an end to violence. So I don't know if the Dalai Lama is accurate, but he's suggesting that it's a way that would help with the trauma of a of humanity relatively quickly. And there'd be other options available for solving problems than harming each other. I think he's right. Yeah, I do too. I'd love to see it happen. I'd love to see the experiment. It would be cool. Yeah. yeah. So, so with kind of on the subject of children, I mean, children, at least I think they should spend a lot of time exploring their creativity and I know you're at least somewhat passionate about art and creativity and how that kind of melds into the healing process and I kind of want to hear your thoughts on why art and creativity are so important for us as humans well children need a lot of time to be children and to play and to express themselves and you know, our modern culture really channels children into learning and achievement and accomplishment and sitting still and being in classrooms very early in life. So, uh, you know, there's something about just honoring the, just the basic foundational needs of kids that's good in giving them the opportunity to be expressive. I am drawn to arts myself because I use them as an expressive tool. So writing, especially poetic writing, drawing, and especially unplanned drawing or painting, like the stuff where you just kind of let it pour out of you because it's fun and you enjoy the textures and the colors, to me is a way of, it does two things. It like it's naturally a meditation of sorts. It's naturally calming to the system. So that's good. And then what we express is oftentimes coming from this same sort of um, reservoir that I've been referring to. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of making connection with our own depths through play. That just seems like a good idea, you know? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And I agree that uh, it's coming from kind of a reservoir because you're, I mean, it's hard to say that, oh, I, I came up with this idea mm -hmm. when the idea kind of just, you know, popped mm -hmm. into your head. 
Yeah. 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 A lot of like artists talk about art flowing through them. Like they're just a vehicle for it. And, and, uh, writers, like a lot of creative people are like that. They talk like that. And I think that's a reference to what we're speaking of is that there's, I don't know, our heads just don't create everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our, our rational mind, which is a lovely thing and really important, but it doesn't create everything and it can't handle everything on its own. So I think most of what we've been talking about and what I'm referencing is this, this additional, um, reservoir of knowledge and different ways of accessing it and utilizing it to live a fuller life adults and kids both so what kind of things do you draw i do a lot of like i like cartooning a little bit and just playing with you know um characters doing things that i never know what they're going to be doing you know so that's just kind of fun doodling it's essentially doodling and then I like a uh, practice which is um, scribble drawing which is do doing non-dominant hands just scribbles and then looking for an image that might have arisen in the scribble and then playing with that image you know like just adding in line and color and texture and all of that and then I spend time with whatever those images are in the same way that I do dream image you know like so if a whatever arises, an elephant arises in my scribble drawing, I might wonder, you know, what does an elephant have to do with my life right now? Hmm. Is this something that you also practice in your clinical work? I don't do a lot of, well, right now, none, because I'm doing all my clinical work by Zoom. But mm -hmm. in the past, a little bit, mostly it's, I teach people sometimes practices that they can do on themselves. It takes time, you know, you do art, so you know this, like art takes time and people don't want to pay, you know, a clinical fee to me to sit in my company and do art. So, you know, and rightfully so, I get that. They want to do art on their own, bring it back, and then we explore it together. So sometimes that happens and people do all different sorts of things, you know, collaging, um, po writing poetry or writing story, you know, is, is important. People will do collage or they do all sorts of things and they'll just bring it in and show it to me. And, and I'll just make a comment oftentimes like, oh, interesting. I, what I see in that, I don't know if you, if this surface for you or not, but I see blah, blah, blah. I'll just make a little statement and that will be the beginning of our time together. And it'll just move from there. So art comes in in that way. I've, you, I don't know if you know this about me. I, I taught a class on campus called Art Artists and Madness uh, for five years. And the, it was to first year students and it was a year long course. And what we did was expressive arts of the types that I'm talking about, self-exploration and understanding pathways to mental wellness through that combination of like expression and study and um and that was super fun and and people seem to really enjoy that opportunity to do that especially as first year students because that first year is really stressful for many people yeah i think that definitely would have helped me if i took that class mm -hmm. yeah i think you would have loved that class mm. yeah i love writing so yeah yeah. I had this guy 
Gerald Fleur on the podcast a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And he was a teacher at this Waldorf school. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of Waldorf education. I have. It's amazing. Yeah. And they, they really focus on music and art, kind of this hand or yeah. like f- this physically based learning, kind of learning by experience. Yeah. And they do everything else, you know, the, the arithmetic, the writing, reading, mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. I don't know if you had any commentary on that. I know you're an advocate of the the Scandinavian form of education, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think Waldorf, the Waldorf method is really, really valuable to children. It's teaching them how to love learning and how to learn not just in, like the American educational system for lots of different reasons, but it's kind of evolved into a, sit in your desk and do Mm -hmm. things with a piece of paper and maybe (laughs) some markers (laughs) but it's a lot of sitting and it's a lot of kind of language-based projects or sometimes numbers-based and what Waldorf is doing is giving kids a chance to learn through their bodies and and to to move you know like our bodies are really really wise things and they and they need to play and express so i think waldorf is reinforcing that and helping ch- children to understand that they're they're not just writers and you know arithmeticians they're also you know they know how to do, to create games and they know how to run and jump and that they can learn things by doing that like that there's a way of learning that way so it has a freedom in it and it allows for kids who maybe don't um, don't sit still as easily or who don't like language isn't their easiest way of learning, you know, that they learn through images or colors or they learn in other ways to have a broader way of learning. So I always think that that inclusiveness is better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like the, the Scandinavian system, that, like the Finnish system, the reason I like that so much is because they've taken out, learning is, is based on a mutuality that isn't very present in our system anymore. So, so teachers aren't doing like, I'm the expert, I'm teaching you so much in Finland. They're doing a, we're creating a learning environment here together. And I'm gonna give you an interesting project that you can engage in and you can learn multi-dimensionally. So they integrate art into all subject matter in the Finnish system at all ages, not just in elementary. So it's got a creative component and it's also like very real life. Their projects are, um, they integrate across subject matter. So it's not just math or reading or history. It's like they integrate, which is more the way real life is. And they also, um, the projects oftentimes have real life implications, you know, like, you know, in high school kids may develop a project that actually could be used as a business. So there's a motivation in it and it's teaching implicitly learning matters. It's not just, you don't just learn to get a grade on a test. You learn because it matters. And I, I think that's, our system has inadvertently put way too much emphasis on grades and testing so that the value of learning or the curiosity of the mind or the multiple ways of learning is easily forgotten. And I, I think that's a great loss 
a great loss. Well, they also kind of, I mean, they do two fundamental issues with this, uh, with the American style of education. I think for one, they kind of sever that reservoir that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And they don't really teach you how to think. Yeah. And at least I've noticed, I mean, I'm not, it, it just sucks feeling like you're a robot. You know, yeah. you're not really thinking, you're kind of just doing mm-hmm. what they told you to do and following the instructions. I mean, it's the difference between following a recipe and making your own meal. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good metaphor. Yeah, I think you're right. It's depersonalizing, right? And mm. and it, I don't know. I the the this movie that I I know you've seen, um, the Finland phenomenon. It has this one scene that I find really amazing where a teacher is at lunch talking to the person who's doing the documentary and his class is already meeting and already doing their work. And they walk into the classroom together like 25 minutes late to class. And the students are engaged and they're, they're enjoying their work and they're talking with one another. Like it's an actively engaged classroom with no teacher present. And the person who's doing the documentary says, uh, I don't think whatever happened in America, like students would do some, their response would be different, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the Finnish students are doing it because they love what they're learning and they want to be learning. That is, to me, that's what it's all about. That's what education is for, to spark curiosity and get people excited to know things and create and share. And our system has unfortunately like just lost sight of that in in some way that I think is the emphasis on grades and on test scores and moving away from like following your own mm-hmm. sort of innate interests or style of learning for learning's sake. And you don't need a teacher to tell you to sit in your desk or whatever and do a project you just need to be interested mm. and want to know more. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of the type of person that doesn't really believe that ADHD is a real thing. I think it's almost mm-hmm. a crazy, I mean, it's it's an obvious side effect of the type of education that we have. Mm. I don't know if you're under the same opinion. Um, well, I know what you're talking about. I mean, I, I have seen some people where I think the diagnosis is is pointing to something biological in them and that the treatment for it has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. That said, um, our educational system is very, very difficult, even for healthy children who just need to move their bodies and need to be doing a mix of activities and who are bored with what they're doing. Like it just comes out in misbehavior and being off task because they aren't engaged naturally I think that's what you're kind of pointing to yeah 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 Yeah, there was this well um there was a study that was done by in the by some researchers at Harvard it's fairly old now probably 10 years old and they found in their research that um ADHD medication was prescribed oftentimes because teachers were having a hard time getting students to sit still in their classroom and sitting still in their classroom was essential because they had so many students to deal with at 
at one time. So it became the solution to a problem came, it, it's like, it's the wrong solution to the problem almost, but it's the only solution that can be available at times. And so it's suggesting that like, we're missing some, we're missing the needs of, of kids, probably not just young children, kids of all ages, where they need some opportunity to just not be like, what did you just, you said earlier, like just completing things, right? Like just plugging in the answers and depersonalized and just, just to get it done. Like there needs to be something more rich than that. Mm -hmm. It needs to be engaging. Engaging. And I also like have this increasing belief that, that our, our, we, we're ignoring the mental health and social needs of people of all ages. And it's very hard to sit in a desk and complete math problems if you're struggling emotionally or your kids at school are being mean or, or you're longing for a meaningful connection to someone and you can't find it or your teachers just don't seem to see you or understand you. And, and we, we just shuffle all of that social emotional stuff to the side as though it's not relevant to school. And it's, I think it's a, a deep mistake that has been made culturally. Well, I think there's also a stigma, you know, when you're in school against going to the school counselor. Yeah. Right. At least yeah. I know, you know, yeah. oh, people are going to the school council or counselor, they must be a baby or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So like people need to get that out of their head and mm -hmm. just, hey, you know, oh, you, you went to counseling. Awesome. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, you're taking care of yourself. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's another one of the ways where mindfulness introduced at an early age or mindfulness and maybe some other social emotional well-being skills for little kids, like that's essentially normalizing the importance of those skills and, and that they're universal needs at an early age that then is present all the way through school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Yeah, yeah. It's been really fun to talk with you and get to share ideas across all these different, well, all the things that I'm interested in and that I really care about. Yeah, that was awesome. Do you have anything more you'd like to share? Um, let's see. Uh, I guess I just want people to know that like, I have mindfulness resources available if anyone's interested in that. And they can just, I have a personal, a professional website. Um, if they Google zen-sunflower.com, I have lots of resources available and it's a way to contact me. So just letting people know of my availability. And uh, yeah, just take really good, I'd want everyone to just take really good care of heart and body, spirit. Like, don't let the culture ever tell you to ignore those things. I think they're super important. Awesome. Well, thank you. I yeah. will put that link in the description. Okay, sounds good. All right. And, and then if anyone has any questions, just email into.v.absurd.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.